0: Good morning church. It's been a day of hearing about anniversaries, so I'll pile one more on there. I'm told that Russ and Carol Cowherd are celebrating their 51st anniversary. Let's give a hand for that. Praise the Lord. Sorry if that embarrasses you guys, but if you see them, make sure you love on them after the service. Well, uh, a couple quick announcements for you. As you mentioned, there will be photos taken downstairs afterward. There's also what we're calling a ministry fair. Uh, As we're going to two services and as our church is growing, there's just... An increasing need for people to be using their gifts at different areas of our church. So we've got different booths set up with different places you could plug in. I'll just put a couple on your radar. We need people helping our security team, and we need people helping out with hospitality uh, in the Next Steps area in the back. There's lots of other opportunities aside from that. So if you're not already serving, I encourage you to head downstairs afterward and consider where the Lord might be calling you to plug in and serve our body together. Well, as we come to God's word, will you join me in a brief word of prayer? Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, we realize the difficult thing that you spoke 2,000 years ago, a word that exposes us, a word that calls our hearts what they really are. We know how easy it would be for us to tune out or to shift this word to someone else. Would you keep us from doing that, Lord Jesus? This morning, help us to hear this word for ourselves. Help me to preach it clearly. Help me to apply it in a way that glorifies you. We pray this in your name. Amen. He is the most bumbling self-defeating, inefficient spy that any country has ever sent on any conceivable mission. It may sound like a character out of a comedy spy caper of some sort, but it's actually spoken about a guy named Reno Heenan. He was a Russian spy during the Cold War that one day stumbled his way into an American embassy. Up until that point, people assumed that the Russian spy network was the top of the heap. They seemed to be everywhere. No one could find a hint of them. People assumed they must be the most devoted, professional spies anyone had in the world. That is until our good friend Reno stumbled his way into the embassy and blew the top off that whole operation. Turns out, as Reno told them in his semi-sober state, Uh, The spies were not universally so dedicated. A lot of them were just good at playing the game. They knew how to keep from being caught, a necessary thing if you're a spy. But even more importantly, they knew how to appear as if they were risking their lives to get information for their government. In actuality, they were just taking money and the opportunity to sit back and have a cushy life here in the U.S., They were experts at playing the game. I think we all know what it's like to become an expert at playing the game, don't you? Maybe not spycraft, but we become experts at figuring out the little rules in the system, the places where we can come just close enough to the line without crossing it. Maybe at work you get good at working just hard enough so that your manager thinks of you as a good employee When you know deep down, you're really not fully engaged. Or teachers in classrooms, they've been dealing with this as long as there have been schools. Kids that know how to do things behind the teacher's back to do just enough of their homework to get a passing grade, but really, their heart's not in it. Well, we here sitting in the church, we're not exempt from this. In fact, you might say the church has made a cottage industry out of playing the game, out of knowing what sins are acceptable and what sins, at least when they're kept out of the public's eye, well, they're not that big of a deal. This morning, Jesus is going to confront us. He's going to blow the lid off of our hearts and show us two areas in which we are tempted to play the game. And yet, in which God is not willing to accept anything except full, heart-level obedience. Friends, this morning we're going to see God is not interested in a group of people that get good at keeping a set of rules, outwardly obeying. He's after a people of transformed hearts. That's something only Jesus can give us. We'll see that in two sections as we move through this sermon. This passage, uh, verses 21 through 26, we'll see how Jesus exposes our murderous hearts. And then in verses 27 through 30, we'll see how Jesus exposes our adulterous hearts. Let me just say on the front end, friends, that many people love the idea of Jesus. But when he actually starts speaking to direct places in our own heart and lives, we actually don't want anything to do with him. This is a hard word from the Savior, but it's spoken out of love, because playing the game does not please God, only a transformed heart will. Let's begin by looking in 21 through 26, and let's look at how Jesus exposes our murderous hearts. Now, remember where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, uh, Eric Swanson preached very capably from uh, verses 17 through 20. And showed us how Jesus, and we as followers of Jesus, connect to the Old Testament Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets. We saw how Jesus didn't come to repeal and replace the Old Testament. He actually came to fulfill it. That the whole Old Testament Scripture actually points us to Jesus, His life, and His teaching. The section we're in is actually the first of six sections. We're going to look at the first two of those sections that show us examples of how Jesus connects his life and ministry to the Old Testament law. You you can just look with me with your eye as we go down the page. You'll see the formula Jesus uses to bring us this connection between himself and the law. It, It goes like this. He says, you have heard it said, and then he follows it up with, but I say to you. You can see that first in verse 21. You have heard it said but I, uh, the, uh, those of old you shall not murder. Then in verse 22, but I say to you, same thing in verse 27, you have heard it was said. Same thing in verse 31, you have heard it, uh, it was also said. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Okay, you get the pattern? How many times does Jesus have to repeat it, right? So th- this is a formula he's using to show us this connection between himself and the Old Testament fleshed out. Now on the front end, just remember, this is not Jesus saying something wholly new. He's not changing God's law. He's shining a brighter light on it. and He's correcting false interpretations and misapplications of it. And friend, as he does so, it's going to get very, very personal. The first of these has to do with the topic of adultery. It says in verse seventeen, uh, I'm sorry, verse twenty-one. You have heard it said of those of old, "You shall not murder." I'm sorry, I jumped ahead to the second point. The first one has to do with murder. <laughs> you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now. A good Jew in Jesus' day would have done what many of you maybe did in Sunday school growing up, would have memorized the Ten Commandments, the the Ten Words God gave to his people back on Sinai. So they would have immediately known that Jesus is referencing here the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Now the teaching in Jesus' day was that murder was a capital offense. If someone took a life, uh, uh, took an image-bearer that God had created. If they had taken their life unjustly, That they themselves had forfeited their life. They had to be put to death. Jesus establishes that fact. And even today, we, we understand this basic premise that murder is not an acceptable thing for anyone, much less a Christian, to undertake. And yet Jesus is going to go a layer deeper here. While some people might say, if you just don't kill anybody, you're good in God's eyes. Jesus says there's actually something deeper that he wants his people to know. That murder starts in our hearts. Look with me in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes the outward law. A lot of people learned how to play the game with. And he says, actually, if you understood God's law in the first place, you'd know it was far, far more than that. God's not just concerned with physical murder. He's concerned with the murder in your heart. The classic work, The Count of Monte Cristo, deals with this reality of murder in one's heart. Uh, Maybe you know the story, Edmond Dantes uh, is betrayed by his closest friend, he he loses his wife, his freedom, he's locked away in an island prison to rot away to the end of his days. He ends up securing his freedom and along the way, he gets rich, gets power and money and sets into motion a plan to get revenge on his former best friend and his former wife. Along the way, he becomes consumed with his anger, and it poisons his soul. There's a point in the movie adaptation of the movie where, uh, of the book where Edmund uh, reunites with his wife and has an opportunity to walk away from his revenge plot, to go off and live peaceably with her, And yet he can't bring himself to do it. He's so bitter deep down in his soul, he says says to her, don't rob me of my hate. It's all I have left. Anger, hate, has a way of working itself deep down into the crevices of our hearts. If we're not careful, it'll poison us from the inside out. Jesus describes it here with three examples that are really all with the same basic point, at increasing intensity. The first is someone who just has the anger within their heart. It's anyone who's angry with his brother, not anything outwardly visible necessarily, just someone who has the emotion. Jesus says that that person is going to be liable for judgment. Then he says uh, the person who takes it a step further, who insults his brother. He says, that person is liable to the council. That would would have been like the group of judges, like the Supreme Court. The third example, he says, someone who spits out a derogatory term, you fool. They're in the danger of the fires of hell itself. Now, Jesus isn't here giving us different categories for which we're supposed to look and find our own anger and say, okay, well, I'll have some earthy consequences for this sort of anger, but maybe I'll go to hell for this sort of anger. No, no, that, that misses the point entirely. Jesus is here telling us, anger in your heart is actually murder in seed form. It's murder that maybe hasn't had enough time or the right circumstance, Murder that hasn't worked its way out into the physical world, but it's murder nonetheless. And if it's not corrected, if it's not dealt with, the consequence of it is eternal separation and punishment away from God and hell itself. Why are the stakes so high here? It's because what it is that we do when we harbor anger in our hearts. we're In that moment, we're actually wishing that a person did not exist. We're seeing them as an obstacle to our happiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Killing does not only mean destroying life physically, it means still more trying to destroy the spirit and the soul, destroying the person in any shape or form. Now, before we feel the weight of Jesus' words, there's an objection we have to deal with. You might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second. If you're telling me that anger is actually murder in my heart, well, doesn't Jesus get angry? I mean, isn't he the guy that flips over the temple tables? Isn't he the guy that's described as snorting in anger when he sees his friend Lazarus dead? How is it that anger is sinful murder? In God's sight, if Jesus himself gets angry. Well, it's important for us to understand the distinction between righteous anger and the anger of our flesh. Jesus, when he's angry, it's always because someone has broken God's holy law, that they are working against God's purposes in this world. He's angry because of the offense against God himself and the consequences of sin. Friends, let's be honest. When we're angry, it's usually because someone's done something personal to us. Think about it. When was the last time you flew off the handle? Was it because someone was blaspheming God's name? Because you saw someone living in a way you know God was not pleased with? Or was it because someone said something personally offensive to you? Because someone was inconsiderate to you? Because you felt disrespected? because you felt as if in that moment you were threatened. No friends, I, I think if we're honest, we'll admit that the vast majority of the time, the anger we feel is not the righteous sort of anger. It's an anger focused on me and who's getting in the way of my happiness. How do you deal with that sort of anger? Is just counting to ten? Or as I teach my daughter to walk up and down the steps to cool down? Is that all you got to do to deal with it? Well, Jesus then goes on to to show us the solution to dealing with his anger, dealing with our anger. It's far deeper than that. We need to deal with it immediately. We must reconcile. Look with me in verse 24, uh, I'm sorry, 23. So if you were offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus here gives us two examples that build on each other to show us that the way to deal with murder in our hearts is to reconcile immediately because there's nothing more important and it's the only way to escape the judgment from God. The first of the two examples is a religious one. He imagines someone coming to the temple to worship. I had to understand how big of a deal that would be for an Israelite. Remember, Jesus is preaching in Galilee. It would have been a long journey, somewhere around 80 miles, to get to Jerusalem. Imagine you've traveled on foot or on donkey 80 odd miles to come do this thing before God that you were instructed you absolutely must do. It cost you time, it cost you money. Your very standing before God hinged on you doing this. Jesus says, In the moment when you are about to offer this animal up, if you remember, that someone has something against you. You're supposed to leave the sacrifice, travel 80 miles back, go deal with it, and then come back and finish your sacrifice. Do you feel the urgency of that? Nothing is more important, even your religious activity before God. We're here in church and there's someone we know we are unreconciled with. Jesus would rather you get up and leave. This is the one time a preacher would be encouraged if people got up and left. (laughs) Go deal with it now rather than waiting. Second example is one of the legal realm. It's someone taking you to court to sue you. And this example, you're walking alongside that person. And Jesus says, you better use the time the two of you are walking to the court building together You better use that time to work it out, to reconcile, because once you get before the judge, it's too late. At that point, you're going to get thrown in jail, and you're not going to get out until you've paid every single thing you own. In other words, there's a window. You either use it, or you pay the penalty. Now, both of these examples... The person that is offended is not us. It's the other person. I think Jesus does this intentionally because we are so often fixated on the times where we are the offended party. I don't think you have to be convinced all that much to say if you're offended by something, you should go talk it out with somebody. That's the lower bar to cross. But Jesus here says if you even know of someone that is offended by something, they're offended somehow by something you did, go and deal with it for the sake of your heart and theirs. You don't have forever. I can tell you there's nothing more discouraging to watch than the reality of someone who's let bitterness take root in their heart and just poison them from the inside out. I remember making a visit to somebody, sitting down and them being pleasant uh, They were on the older end of the spectrum, and I was there as a pastor, so we were praying together. And somehow or the other, we got on the subject of someone that had harmed them literally decades and decades ago. And it was like a different person came out. The vile, the bitterness that spewed out of their mouth. You know the heartbreaking thing about that? The person they were talking about had been dead for years. Friend, don't let that happen to you. Don't imagine that holding on to that grudge is a morally neutral thing. Don't imagine that God looks at it and he's fine with it. Jesus calls it murder in your hearts, and he says, Deal with it now because one day it'll be too late. Friend, if there's anyone you need to make a phone call to, if there's anyone you need to go drive and pay a visit to, don't delay. for the good of your own soul, for the good of theirs, for the good of your standing before God. Your religious activity, your playing this game, it is no cover for the murder present in your heart. Jesus says, deal with it now. Now that's a hard thing to do, which is why we need to remember the one who spoke these words is the one who earlier said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus knows how difficult it is to let go of our anger and our bitterness. And yet recognize that when we come to the cross, we lose all claim we have against holding on to things people have done against us. When you're so mad that you're out for blood, when you look up at the cross, you realize you already got your blood. The cross ruins any pride we might have, any reason to hold on to offenses in the past. As Christians, we are called to forgive To reconcile. Because our God has come down and reconciled us to himself. It's a hard word. Murder in our hearts. Deal with it now. The second word Jesus has is no easier. He moves from the area of murder to the area of adultery. In verses 27 through 30. Jesus exposes our adulterous hearts. In verse 27, he Reiterates the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, even today, when polled Americans, we're, even when we're permissive in almost every other area when it comes to sexuality, we still say that adultery overwhelmingly is wrong. Even as adultery rates are through the roof, people have this moral compass enough left to say that adultery is not something that's okay. You can see the damage adultery's done and written in large letters in other people's lives. Uh, think of Tiger Woods. Think of the clean cut image and the superstar athlete that had more than holes in his SUV when all was said and done, all because of the sin of adultery. My own uh, seminary graduation had two megachurch pastors come and preach at it. And within one year, both of them had had, uh, lost their ability to do ministry because they themselves had committed adultery. Even as we know that it's not okay, even as we know it's morally unacceptable, results keep on happening again and again. People go back on their marriage vows. They commit sin before God. What is it that's wrong with our hearts That gets us to that place. Well, Jesus says the problem starts far before you hop into bed with somebody. The problem is that our hearts themselves are adulterous. He says this in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus shows us that God's law was never okay with us just staying away from that one far-off line and everything else leading up to it was all right. Now, if we had paid attention to the Ten Commandments, we'd know that the Tenth Commandment says you can't even covet your neighbor's wife. That's not in the realm of the physical. That's in the realm of the heart. Jesus shows us that from the second our eyes linger for too long the second our minds conjure a scenario in our heads that adultery has taken hold of our hearts. If you're in the church around my age, then chances are you live through uh, a push called the True Love Waits uh, initiative. The, the idea there was to get people to hold off from sleeping together until they're married, to reserve purity for the marriage bed, and a lot of good was done through that. Very thankful for that. And yet, even the leaders of that movement, in the years that have come, have looked back and said, you know, we actually didn't go nearly far enough. We held out marriage as the end goal here, and we held out not sleeping together as the thing to avoid, when in fact Jesus is concerned with the heart. Now, As Christians, we can't be satisfied from just playing the game well enough to to never cross that far off line. We've got to deal with the adultery present that no one sees, the adultery only in our thoughts, in our imaginations, in our hearts. How do you deal with it? Jesus says we have to cut it out. Verses 29 through 30, his words get sharper still. He says, uh, "If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell." And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body go into hell. Some people have struggled whether Jesus is talking literally or figuratively here. Some people think that a church father named Origen took these words literally and actually castrated himself uh, as an application of this. I don't think Jesus is speaking um, figuratively, figuratively in the sense that we're not to take him seriously. I think what Jesus is saying is that there's no price that's too high to keeping your heart free from the sin of adultery. That whatever you have to do, it's worth it. If tearing out your eye could solve the problem, then by all means do it. If cutting off your hand could solve the problem, then by all means do it. But the friends, the problem's so much deeper than an eye or a hand. Jesus is using an extreme example to show us we should be willing to pay any price. Why does he use the eye and the hand? Well, the eye is what you use to see. It's the gateway into your heart. It fuels your dreams and imagination. Your hand is what you use to get things that you want. It's what you would use to steal. It's what you'd use to get the thing that you are craving here. Jesus says if it would solve the problem, friend, cut it out. Because the alternative is so much worse. This is the third time Jesus mentions the fires of hell. If you don't like that doctrine, realize Jesus talks about it more than anyone else in the Bible. It's the fate of anyone who continues persistently in a sin and rebellion to God and never brings it to Jesus in repentance and faith. An eternity separated from God under his just wrath. Shudder to even think about it. Three times this morning, Jesus has spoken of it. Jesus says, like a doctor that's willing to cut off an arm that's got gangrene to save the body, we need to be willing to cut out literally anything. Keep our hearts pure. Now, there's an elephant in the room when it comes to talking about this subject. It's the subject of pornography. We live in a day and age that pornography is not just described as, it actually is a public health problem. It is so pervasive that we actually have government agencies not coming from a Christian worldview saying that this is causing great harm in our communities. This is from the U.S. Department of Justice. It says, Never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. At last count, the pornography industry is a $13 billion industry each year. By age 18, 9 out of 10 American boys have viewed pornography. 6 out of 10 girls. Not much better in the church. 64% of Christian men, when surveyed, admit to watching porn once a month. 15% of women. 41% of young Christian men say they regularly seek out pornography. And staggering 72% of non-Christian men say they do the same. Jesus says it's not no big deal. It's not just something you're dealing with. It's not, it doesn't just not hurt anyone. Jesus says it's adultery in your heart. You've got to cut it out or it'll claim your very soul. Friend, what price are you willing to pay to honestly before God have a pure heart in this area? Would you go through life as a technological blind person? Would you be willing to give up a smartphone, to get rid of your home internet, to cut yourself off from your cable, if that's what it took to stop putting yourself in a position that you would fail again and again and again? Would you be willing to be maimed in terms of your privacy? Would you go public with your sin to your small group so you actually have some accountability? Would you be willing to be honest with your spouse, knowing the pain it would cause and knowing what it would do to your reputation in their eyes? Would you be willing to limp through life, giving up freedom after freedom, if that's what it took to keep your eyes from things that would fuel the adultery in your heart? Jesus says, no price is too high. Cut it out before it claims your very soul. I know that's a hard word and I know if you're stuck in the trap of pornography or other sexual sin, just how hopeless it feels. And so I want you to very clearly hear this. The one speaking this hard word, Jesus, is one full of mercy And grace sufficient to get us out of the worst of the snares that we get ourselves into. He's the one who's known from accepting prostitutes and sinners of all sorts to come around him. And he didn't come to this earth looking for those who had it all put together, who knew how to play the game well enough that people thought they were okay. He came to make us into something we're not. Came to take a bride to wash her by the water of his word, to give her grace again and again and again, until one day she was beautiful, spotless, without any sort of blemish. The good news of the gospel is that you can be honest about what is present in your heart. You don't have to play the game. Because Jesus came and did everything you should have done according to God's holy law, And now he declares there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But friend, you have to come to the light of Christ. Maybe this morning, for the first time, you're getting up the courage to break that cycle. Friend, if you need someone to talk to, there'll be uh, Terry Seitz, our elder, and his wife Dawn will be up front. I'll be up front. I've got books and resources. I'll pray with you. I'll, I'll meet with you. But hear what Jesus is saying about our hearts. Take it seriously. Got to cut it out, or it'll claim your soul. God's not looking for people that are good at playing the game, looking for people that obey from the heart. That was the promise long ago in Jeremiah. When he looked forward to the day Jesus came, it wasn't for a group of people on the outside obeyed. It was that there would be a group of people that would have God's law written on their hearts. They would obey because that's who they are. They've been transformed from the inside out. I got to see the effects of this firsthand with a man I met. He got really good at playing the game. He was a churchgoer, good good businessman. Had a great marriage with kids, on the outside anyway. On the inside, he was getting eaten up by adultery of the heart. It had gotten so far that it had worked itself into adultery physically. Repeatedly, he had cheated on his wife. One day, you can't tell me why, but one day, he became convicted about the duplicitous life he was living. Sitting in bed next to his wife, He came to the conclusion he had to cut it out. He confessed to her. It nearly destroyed their marriage. He lost a job over it. He had to tell each of his adult children himself. He switched careers entirely. He ended up having to leave the church he was in. You know, I met him decades after this had occurred. And when I met him, he was such a whole man. God had put him back together in such an amazing way. He talked with the young pastors on our staff. He would talk with us about the peace and joy that came for being honest about the sins of his heart and bringing them to the cross. Playing the game will never get you that sort of peace and joy, friend. Come to Jesus. Bring your sin to the foot of the cross. It's not after people that play the game. He wants you to obey from the heart. And he can give you a new one. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's a hard word that you spoke. One that if we were left to our flesh, we would run away from we would ourselves give in to the anger of being called out. We would run and hide and turn to bitterness. And yet, Lord, we know that with your Spirit's help, with the new heart you've given us, that instead of taking this word and trying to shut it out of our hearts and our minds, that instead it will be a source of life. Help us to respond to the grace that you've already given us from the cross. Help us not to run and hide from the murder and adultery in our hearts. Help us instead to run to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.